Welcome to Garage Philosophy. I'm your host, Ian Coleman. The garage is both the everyman's classroom and laboratory. Lessons are shared, ideas are put to the test, and curiosity is encouraged. Now, I'm not a PhD, but I am fascinated by philosophical concepts. My hope is by making philosophy understandable, you can learn how to do life better. Welcome to the show, everyone. So this is the Mature Masculinity Part 2. In the last episode, we explored masculinity and archetypes. In this episode, we're going to cover boyhood archetypes or immature masculine archetypes. So as you'll remember from our last episode, we talked about toxic masculinity, which I said would be better defined as pseudo-masculinity, which is the false role of masculinity that's mistaking control or threatening dominance behaviors as strength, which, in a sense, could be hiding weakness. I know vulnerability usually comes from a past trauma. I know in my life, usually when these behaviors that I'm about to talk to you about come forth, it, it probably is from a past trauma. So that helps me give some sort of compassion or empathy to myself and to others when they exhibit these archetypes. I think another idea to keep in mind, too, in this episode is the idea that Jung put forth about archetypes, that you don't possess archetypes, they possess you. So you exist independently from the archetype, and the archetype exists independently from yourself. So as I was talking about with toxic masculinity, in Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette's King Warrior, Magician Lover, Rediscovering the Archetypes of the Mature Masculine. They say that the Im immature masculinity, which is toxic masculinity and what they refer to as boyhood psychology, is four archetypes. So just to let you know, I will be referring to this book a lot in this episode. Um, it's a great book. I would highly recommend that if you're interested in anything I'm saying, if you're interested in this series, please go read that book. It is not a long read, but it is just packed with metaphor. And I, I think uh, Gillette and Robert Moore, I think they do a really good job at explaining this through their prose. So the immature masculine archetypes. There's the divine child, there's the precocious child, the Oedipal child, and the hero. So to give you some foreshadowing of what will come in the next episode, and to put it in context, I think, the divine child becomes the king that we talked about. That's the masculine archetype. The hero, which is the immature, becomes the mature warrior archetype. The immature precocious child becomes the mature magician. The immature, eatable child becomes the lover. Now, these boyhood archetypes, they don't go away. Think of it as like a foundation 
that the mature archetypes are built upon. Because, as I'll cover later, you don't want to get rid of boyhood. You want to build on top of it. And the structure of these archetypes, obviously this being a podcast, I, I can't draw a picture for you, but if you go over to theartofmanliness.com, they have an article titled The Four Archetypes of the Mature Masculine. And that gives a great visual representation of what I'm talking about. But imagine, if you will, that each archetype is a triangle. At the top of that archetype is the archetype in its fullest. So what does that mean? That's when it is its most good, when it, when it is being expressed in its most good. And at the bottom, the bottom two corners are the active and the passive shadow, the shadow archetype, which is the not too savory parts of those archetypes. So let's dive right in. The first archetype, which is the first to develop, is the divine child archetype. So this can be defined as childlike enthusiasm, that excitement, that sense of wonder and adventurousness of boyhood. I think we all can experience that, male or female, uh, just that sense of wonder and enthusiasm that we have as children, where everything is new, everything is exciting. There, there is some sort of divine power there, and yet we are helpless. We are born into this world as a helpless baby. So even though we embody all of that divineness, we are also helpless. So as the authors say in the book, we can see examples in our culture of this. Jesus being the divine child, he is the son of God. He is the center of the universe, all powerful and yet helpless. Yet he relies on Mary and Joseph to take care of him, even though he's the son of God. He is God incarnate. When King Herod hears about his birth, and there, I think there was a prophecy somewhere that he would be overthrown by the son of God, King Herod sets out to kill Jesus. And so Mary and Joseph have to take him away to Egypt and, and to be protected and so he can grow into the man he is to become, the son of God. And, and that's interesting, that dichotomy of he is a divine being, but yet he has to be protected by his mortal parents, by Mary and Joseph. And he has to be taken out of his homeland for a time. And I had no idea, but reading this book, uh, it brought to light that this is actually modeled on an older myth of Zoroastrianism, where Zoroaster being part of that myth goes through a similar journey of Jesus. He is a divine child that needs to be protected, similar to the story of Moses and Judaism as well. So the active shadow of the divine child archetype is the high chair tyrant. So the high chair tyrant thinks that he is the center of the universe, that everyone exists to meet his needs. Usually this comes from a want of attention. You know, when, we're, when we're children, we think that we are the center of the universe. Everything revolves around us. And, and that makes sense because we're just babies. We, we have no idea of all the forces that 
are occurring, all these things that are occurring in the world, I mean, we're just babies. There's no way to know that. And we want attention. We want love from our moms and dads and people around us. And so the high chair tyrant often hurts himself and others with his grandiosity. That means his limitless demands, the demands that he puts on himself, that he puts on others, that he's just never satisfied with what others are providing him or maybe what he's providing himself. So some of the characteristics of the divine child archetype are arrogance, childishness, irresponsibility, and narcissism, which is a better word for thinking that you're the center of the universe. And in that narcissism, the high chair tyrant is incapable of taking criticism. I mean, every criticism feels like an attack. I know at times... I suffer from that. It feels like when people criticize me that they're attacking me as a person and not the thing that I'm doing. But in reality, people, well, most healthy people, I would hope, are not attacking you as a person when they give you criticism. They're, they're rather trying to correct the thing that you are doing. And so as I said, this turned inward is the perfectionist. I struggle with perfectionism, you know. When I am recording this podcast, I don't think any of this sounds good or that I could air any of this. I mean, I recorded a whole nother episode, I mean, 40 minutes, and I got to the end of it, and I was like, no, no, none of that's good. I'm just throw that away. And I think that other people struggle with that as well in their jobs. You know, I, I can't do my job perfectly. I can't do it like everyone else, you know, comparing yourself to others. And maybe in your relationships, you know, whether you have a significant other, oh, I can't be who this person wants me to be or who they need me to be. There is a part of acceptance in that, that we have to accept ourselves just as we are. A helpful tip to get out of this is something I actually learned from Sean Hancock on the improv lifestyle. Now, Sean Hancock, he teaches my improv class that I take. It's, if you guys haven't done improv, I would highly, highly suggest you do it. It has changed the way I communicate. It's changed the way that I do this podcast. Um, It changes how I relate to people, how I build relationships. But to get to what he told me, be excellent, not perfect. So, Again, that goes back to that acceptance of like, I, okay, I know, I know I will never be perfect, even though as I, as I say that right now, I get this, this feeling in my stomach, like, oh no, I can't be perfect. You know, instead be excellent, be excellent with your word, be excellent with your work, be excellent in who you are, you know, hold yourself to that standard and not the impossible standard of perfection. So the second shadow or the passive shadow is the weakling prince. So the weakling prince has very little personality, no enthusiasm for life, and rarely takes initiative in doing things. So he needs to be coddled in a sense. He needs to, needs to know he's okay, and he needs others to tell him that he's okay. So this brings to mind the victim role. When I was working in wilderness therapy, Uh, I would deal with youth that had drug addictions or they had personal traumas that they were dealing with, and they they just couldn't cope with society. They couldn't cope with themselves. 
some of them would fall into this victim role. And, and a person in that role tries to gain pity from other people, you know, sympathy or compassion from people. And if you think of, you know, another triangle visual representation that I'm going to talk about is the victim triangle, where the victim is one corner, the rescuer is another corner, and the persecutor is, is the final corner. And so the persecutor persecutes the victim, and the victim, instead of standing up to the persecutor, relies upon that rescuer to come in and rescue them. So the weakling prince does not throw the same tantrums of the high chair tyrant, but he will have silent protests, or he may complain or whine about things with, with no sort of solution. I think whining and complaining are different than actually saying that there's a problem. Because voicing that there is a problem in that you acknowledge that this is a real issue that we need to focus on. And number two is that you have some sort of solution on how to get out of this predicament. And, and complaining and whining, they that's not what it is. Is It's just, oh, this is a horrible thing. Don't you feel sorry for me? Another idea to keep in mind here is that there can be a dramatic swing in these active and passive shadows. In the example of the high chair tyrant, the high chair tyrant may swing to the weakling prince when he doesn't get his way. Maybe he'll try to seek some sort of sympathy or compassion for somebody. And maybe the weakling prince, when he gets overwhelmed, you know, that he's just letting people walk all over him, maybe he'll swing to the tantrum of a, of a high chair tyrant. And so what is the solution? In the book that I referred to, Moore and Gillette say that you need to acknowledge that archetype when it manifests in your life. So the solution lies in first acknowledgement and also parenting these archetypes when they manifest. So we need to stay connected to our divine child. That's another part of the solution. As Moore and Douglas say in the book, quote, if we don't have a connection with our divine child, we are never going to see the possibilities in life. We are never going to be able to seize new opportunities for freshness and newness. Everyone in a leadership capacity needs to be connected with the creative and playful child in order to manifest his full potential and advance his cause. Connection keeps us from feeling washed up and bored and unable to see the abundance of human potential all around us, end quote. So as the authors say, I think there are two questions that I have found useful in my life and two questions I would like you to ask yourself. Number one, is the high chair tyrant or weakling prince being manifested and where? Not if or are they at all. Either one of these is being manifested in your life. I know the high chair tyrant is being manifested to some sense in my work. You know, I, I feel this sort of righteousness or that everything should be a certain way when I go to my job. But in reality, that's just not how life works. And the weakling prince, that may come from at my job when I don't speak up, you know, when I don't bring these issues forward. Again, is the high chair tyrant or weakling prince being manifested in your life? And where in your life is that being manifested? So the second question, am I acknowledging that archetype? 
Am I accepting and am I parenting that archetype? Am I giving that archetype what it needs? So to me, that means, am I giving that archetype a voice? Because remember, that archetype is not you. It exists separately. As Jung says, you are possessed by the high chair tyrant. You do not possess the high chair tyrant. There is a difference. To me, it's like I need to accept that it's there, and I need to take the parenting role in that. It's like, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do in order to get this back on track, to get this back to center? So the second archetype to develop is the precocious child. That's the curious nature and the sense of wonder in boyhood. You know, wanting to know the why of everything. Why is the sky blue? Why are there fish in the sea? And the other part of that is wanting to enthusiastically share what he knows with others. Now, the precocious child tends to be introverted and reflective and can see the hidden connection of things. Now, I see the precocious child manifesting in my life because of my curious nature, because of my sense of wonder, and also my introversion. And also in this podcast, I think the precocious child is being manifested in me in this podcast because I've learned about these things and I want to share them with you. The active shadow of the precocious child is the know-it-all trickster. That is the mischievous nature of boyhood. As they say in the book, he is an expert at creating appearances and selling people on those appearances which I can relate to. I create an appearance because I want people to like me. I want to be accepted. But if that's not who I am, if that appearance is not who I am, then I'm just tricking that person. You know, even though I want to be loved, I want to be accepted by people. I want to have friends. But if if I'm not that person, then I am just lying to whoever I'm talking to, whoever I'm giving that appearance to. So the mischievous nature of the know-it-all trickster, that making appearances, comes from a sense of superiority when compared to others. And again, that comes back to that vulnerability of a hurt child. Maybe that comes from insecurity or or abuse from your past. So the know-it-all trickster gets people to believe and trust him and then betrays them. Like I was talking about, is that when we put on this show, when we put on an act, and then we, we show who we actually really are, it makes it hard to trust who we are. Because people are like, oh, I thought you were this way, and now you're that way. So who are you, really? I think that's why it's so important to be authentically you, especially with the people who are close to you. So what are some examples of this? We can see this in cult leaders like Jim Jones, that shady salesman, you know, that just treats you as a means to an end and not an end in and of yourself. Kind of like I talked about in the Five Minute Friday. That, you know, it's the part of the Kantian ethics of treating people as an end in and of themselves and not a means to an end. So there are some positive sides to this shadow. The trickster is also a master at deflating egos and in ourselves and in others. And it makes us realize our inflated self-importance. So there's an example from the book where the authors talk about the medieval court jester. 
So the king would appoint a jester in their court. And the reason for that being was to make sure that the, that the king did not get too inflated with his self-importance. And you might think, like, well, he's the king. Like, why would he want somebody pointing out his faults and making fun of him? Well, think about who the king is surrounded by. He's surrounded by a bunch of sycophants, people who either want the throne, people who want to appease the guy on the throne. The job of, of the court jester was to be like, no, actually, king, you're just another person. You're just like us. You are a person who is in the office of the king, but that doesn't mean that you aren't a person like me. And I think we can see that in today. An example that comes to mind is comedians. Many of comedians' jokes today are based on the premises of ego inflation. The one thing that you think you do that nobody else does, that you think that nobody else does. And when they say it, you laugh because you're like, oh, oh, okay, I am not the only one who does that. I'm not the only one with that problem. That is the important role of the trickster is deflating egos, making sure that we're not getting too inflated in our own self-importance. There is the negative to this shadow. That negative side it can be destructive to ourselves and to others. I would say that that destructiveness is apparent when it comes from a place of envy and insecurity. And we can see this in modern society, especially in cancel culture, where usually people will say something wrong, do something wrong, and we won't just punish them on that wrong thing that they did or they, that they might have said. It's just like, okay, like now everything, everything has to be thrown out because you did one wrong thing. This is not me condoning bad behavior, but I think we need to have a nuanced discussion as to what, what does it mean when a person does that, and also they have contributed something else to society. Because I think it's so easy to just tear down somebody and to throw these lobbing insults and accusations at people. It, it, it gets on really scary ground when we start doing that. I think to refer back to my first episode of sneering cynicism, I think it's unjustified for a person to tear down somebody in, in our society just because they envy them. Just because maybe they feel that person who is tearing them down or canceling them maybe feels insecure in some way. Maybe there's, you know, they think, oh, I could never do that thing. I could never become a comedian. I could never become an actor. I could never do that. So now I need to tear that person down. I think that is the scary part of it. So to get back to the archetype, the passive shadow of the precocious child is the dummy. That's being naive and bumbling, the, the clumsiness of boyhood. And, it, and that comes from a place of refusing to learn because that person may fear failure. So the third archetype to develop is the Oedipal child. Oedipal comes from Oedipus. If you're not familiar with that story, it's a story of a man who is the son of a king and is banished after there is a prophecy that he will kill the king. Now, later in his life, unknowingly, he kills the king. And also, unknowingly, he marries his widowed mother, the queen, unlawfully 
usurping the throne. Now, if you feel disgusted by that, you are in good company. But in a sense, every boy kills their father, metaphorically. What I mean by that is that he is rebelling against him. He is rebelling against what he symbolizes. That could be order. You know, maybe it's the order of society. Maybe that's whatever rule that the father had on the household. I think every boy goes through that process, especially in teenage years where they need to rebel against that social norm. Also, the other part of that story, to marry the mother, I believe to marry the mother is the metaphorical sense of of falling in love with that nurturing nature or that coddling that we get as young men from mom. As the authors say in the book, is that it's falling in love with that feminine nature. So some of the positive qualities, because there are some positive qualities, believe it or not, of the Oedipal child, they're passionate. They still have that sense of wonder, like the precocious child. And as Moore and Gillette say, quote, the Oedipal child has a deep connection for the connectedness with his inner depths and with others and with all things, end quote. The active shadow of the Oedipal child is the mama's boy. So that is an unhealthy connection with mother and the feminine. And so how is that expressed? That could be expressed by pornography. That could be expressed by compulsive masturbation. It is the unhealthy infatuation with the female body. And so to better define that, it's the unhealthy infatuation of the physical female form with a disregard of her personhood. And, and maybe because you feel as though you need to possess that feminine in some way. Maybe there's some hole that you're trying to fill in yourself. And just to be clear, I think that you can't, like, I'm not saying that masturbation is wholly unwrong, but, you know, I think when, and you're trying to fill some sort of hole or you're trying to possess in some unconscious way the feminine form, I think that's where we get into the unhealthiness of it. Again, getting back to that nuanced sort of idea is that, you know, everything is not going to be black and white, that there is going to be this dance in between meanings and in between, you know, like, like the old saying says, is that life is not all black and white. It's a lot of gray areas. And I think it takes a lot of discussing with yourself and with others to find out what is healthy for you, especially when it comes to sexuality and to sex. So the mama's boy, he wants to be connected to a woman without all the complexity of a relationship. He doesn't want to take on that responsibility of having a relationship with her. And according to Jung, the mama's boy comes from an absent or weak father figure during childhood. The dreamer is the passive shadow of the eatable child. The dreamer feels isolated from human relationships and would rather be alone with his thoughts than connecting with people. He often feels withdrawn and depressed. At times, I feel that way. I feel like, oh, I, I don't need to make friends. I can just be here alone with myself. And I think that, in a sense, is why, for me, loneliness is, is so dangerous is because I get so comfortable with myself. I get so comfortable being alone. 
and it becomes too late to where I'm like, oh, well, I, I should reach out to friends and they have may have already moved on. Oh, I haven't heard from you in like a month. So for me, I, I, I have to really try to stay up on all of my relationships because if not, I just, I get withdrawn and I get depressed. So the fourth and final immature masculine archetype to develop is the hero archetype. It is the pathway to manhood, the mature masculine. Now think about the hero's journey. As Joseph Campbell says in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, the hero's journey is almost a universal idea or story structure that is across culture. It's not just in Western culture. It's in Eastern culture. It's in the Middle East. It's in Russia. Like Even on some of the most remote islands, when we look at their myths and their stories, we can see some sort of element of the hero's journey. Some examples of this that are popular in, in our culture, and especially in movies, are Harry Potter. It's the hero's journey. He has to go up against some unbeatable foe, Lord Voldemort, and he has to defeat them. In The Matrix, Neo has to defeat Agent Smith, which becomes this unbeatable foe. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo has to do this impossible task, take the one ring to Mordor so he can destroy it. So essentially, in these stories, the hero has to battle with an a seemingly unbeatable foe. And in the process, he also has to battle himself. Because, as you can tell in all these stories, if you've watched these movies, the, the hero doesn't stay the same through it. He's, the, the journey changes him as he goes along. You know, he becomes a different person, maybe at times bitter. Maybe he loses faith in what he's doing but he comes out on the other side victorious. And therefore, that is why the hero archetype and the hero's journey is a pathway to the mature masculine. So the active shadow of the hero archetype is the grandstander bully. He's boastful and at times aggressive to assert his dominance on those who surround him. Some would say that this is hiding maybe cowardice and insecurity in himself. This guy is not a team player. I mean, he's not interested in being one of the team, one of the guys. He's got to be alone, you know, in and of himself. The grandstander bully also thinks that he is invulnerable. I mean, this brings to mind of when I was a teenager, I know me and my friends used to drive our cars super fast, and it was usually like daring each other. You know, like we would be driving and one person would speed up and the other person would speed to match that speed. All the while, I mean, we had no idea how dangerous this all was or how much trouble we could actually get in. It's this idea of invulnerability. And, and really, like this was all to like fuel my pride and social status. It had no other goal than that. It was just this total self-aggrandizing move that I think a lot of people have done or are doing in their lives. And so I think that's what we have to be careful for when we do things. Like, is this thing that I'm doing, does it have a purpose? Or is its purpose 
just to make me look better, to increase my social status. Because it's okay if that is a byproduct of what you do, but it should not be the goal of what you do. Another aspect of the grandstander bully as it relates to the hero is that he needs to conquer the feminine. As the authors say, quote, and assert his masculinity, end quote. So he needs to conquer women, maybe that feminine part of society. And I think that comes from, like I was talking about in, in teenage years, a need to be independent. I need to go out and make myself to become an individual. The authors bring up this example of the night stories, where the knight rescues a damsel in distress. And they bring up this interesting idea that if he, if the knight ever really got the damsel, he wouldn't know what to do with her. You know, like think about your first date that you had with a girl, you know, like you're trying to like hype yourself up, like, oh, I'm going to take her to the movies and do all this type of stuff. And like when it actually comes time to like saying goodnight, like you, you don't, you wouldn't know what to do. You're just like, uh, you're just like shocked in fear. So the passive shadow of the hero archetype is the coward. So the coward does not stand up for himself. He allows others to walk all over him. You know, he doesn't have clear boundaries. He may be constantly bullied by others. And at times, he explodes with the anger and violence of the grandstander bully. Remember how I said that these two um, shadows, the passive and the active, can swing into each other. So he explodes with anger and violence when he has had enough of being a doormat. This reminds me of a book I read um, called No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert A. Glover. And this is one of the hallmarks of nice guy syndrome. You can't or don't want to stand up for yourself, that you don't have these clear boundaries. And when you've finally had enough, of people just walking all over you without setting these boundaries, you know, without telling people no, then you just explode in anger and people are like, whoa, where did this come from? But all along, you were kind of like the trickster in a sense of, you know, you didn't let people know who you really were or are and, you know, what you really stand for, what you feel. I think there's such a power in letting people know exactly who you are, you know, being authentic. So let's talk more about the hero's journey. In the hero's journey, the hero is pushed to his limits to see how capable he really is, as the authors say, to establish his independence and his competency. To go back to the, the speeding example that I was giving before it's like we were me and my friends were trying to push our limits like see how fast we can take this car how fast can I take myself am I going to freak out I think you know we as men especially as boys we're, we're pushing the boundaries of, of what's possible in ourselves the hero's journey allows us to dream that impossible dream to to defeat the impossible foe and to overcome him and to come out a different person on the other side. It allows you to stand as an individual to develop that independence in a person and who you are, not just as a man, but as a individual, as a person. 
who is separate, who has your own ideas, your own thoughts, your own beliefs. And in the journey, there is also the death of the hero. To go back to the Jesus story, you know, Jesus was crucified on the cross. And in older myths, in older stories, there's a lot of that death and rebirth. I know in the Matrix, especially too, Neo is is killed and then is brought back to life by some sort of divine power, some sort of power that he's had all along. It's that death, and that death symbolizes the death of the boy and the birth of the man. What does that mean? It means you acknowledge and you grapple with the dark side of yourself, and you come out on the other side of that journey battle-worn. I mean, you may have scars at the end of it. You know, you may be disfigured in, in a metaphorical sense, hopefully not in a true physical sense. I really hope you don't come out like physically scarred from this. But on the other side, because you've looked deep within yourself, deep within the darkness that is within you, within all of us, and you come out changed on the other side. This is really prevalent to me right now in my therapy that I'm going to. It's to, to dive deep into these past traumas, these past events that have plagued me for so long and to really dig deep into them and figure out why and to go into them. I mean, it's not a pleasant experience. It's not, you know, it, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of willpower to get up every day and, and just face those demons. You have to have a mentor when you're doing that. You have to have somebody who is wiser than you. In my therapy, it is my therapist who is that person to me who is, who is showing me all the things I need to see in myself. So after the hero's journey, the hero develops what the authors refer to as true humility. So that means knowing your limits. You've, you've pushed the bounds. You know, you know what you're capable of, and you know that you have limits. You know that you are not infinite, that you can die, that you, you are mortal. And the other part of that is getting the help you need. So that's seeking out those mentors. That's seeking out those people who can help you along your path. Now, if we do not identify with the hero and instead use this hero energy, our limits will surprise us. We will have an adventurous spirit. The hero's journey is the pathway to the mature masculine, which we will cover in part three of the mature masculine. Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate you guys tuning in, spending some time with me. I really do enjoy sharing this with you. As I said in the last episode, is that the best way I have found and what somebody told me is that the best way to learn something is to teach it to somebody. This information becomes really codified in my mind, becomes really solidified when I am able to express it to you. So thank you guys, you have helped me. So if you have liked this episode, please like, subscribe, share this episode, the more people I believe that know about this, especially men, you know, if there's a guy in your life who you're seeing struggle with these immature masculine, these toxic masculinity, please share this episode with them. 
Until next time, guys, just remember, try to look for philosophy in your own life.